Would anybody like to include anybody in our prayer list? The two that we said last week, our friends Dick Carpenter and Darlene Allen, they're still suffering, still healing. Both? Dick and Darlene. Yeah, but I mean both suffering? Yeah, in the moment. Dick and Darlene? Uh-huh. What's wrong again? Linda, say what I forgot. Uh, Dick has sepsis, so he's in rehab, getting his antibiotic for two more weeks, and Darlene had anal cancer, and then the side effects we think of the chemo has caused severe leg pain, back and leg. nerve endings. I have a friend, Bob, who has fourth-stage cancer. But it's spreading into various parts. Her name is Marianne. Marianne. My sister-in-law, Iris. What's the stage four cancer? Wow. How old is she? With chemotherapy. Late 60s. Oh, yeah. Would you add Father Jude? His hip replacement, is that, yeah? <laughs> I feel like I should say a prayer for Father um, Raul's sense of humor. <laughs> let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in Mass, <clears throat> in the Eucharist, in your words to us, most especially for your life, that we carry a sacrificed life within us. Um, help us to find a strength in it, your actual presence in us, um, to follow you, to, uh, to sacrifice our own lives, give them up. Um, how hard that is, strengthen all of us, please, to do that. Um, ask a special blessing on um, Dickon, um, Darlene. Watch over them, help them recover. Um, be with, um, is it Mark? Marianne. Marianne and Ju Ju Julie? Iris. Iris, Iris sorry. Um, Marianne and Iris, um, um, watch over them. If there's any surgery to be performed or chemotherapy, um, whatever happens, um, let these ordeals be occasions for drawing closer to you, trusting um, the grace of giving up their life, as we're all asked to do, not to be afraid, um, to look forward to joining you. Let a, let a peace rest with them, um, a trust in you in these difficulties. Be with Father Jude in his recovery, and I ask a special grace for all of us here who have um, grown closer over time <coughs> and drawn together by these works that, um, that we be strengthened in our efforts to, um, to find you in these works and bring you to our world, to have the courage to do that when it's hard. Help us all to do that, please. 
And we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's see. Um, do you all have the Songs of Innocence poem? The Blake. week, right? We, we didn't do Blake, yeah. Just a word on Blake. This will be really important. It'll, I think it'll be interesting for you to know. I, if, if you remember, when I was trying to put Melville in a broad historical context, I said that um, if you look at all of the English novels, not always European, there were there's some, some different novels written in France by French writers, but if you look at all English novels, for the most part, they're not, they're all secular in the 19th century. <coughs> Fielding, um, Trollope, Dickens, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Thackeray, and the novels get darker as you move to the end of the century, Conrad and James. You, it's almost as if England goes through this period of innocence and then novelists begin to see that earlier novelists were, were, were not being truthful they were too innocent, too light. So when you get to Conrad and James and Joyce and others, Virginia Woolf, you enter a darker world. But even so, if you look at the novels in the 19th century, they're all secular. They're all secular. Um, you, I, I love Jane Austen. I hope, I hope one day I'll be able to see her. I, I just, well, I cannot express the depth of gratitude I feel for that woman. So she's the first one that opened a domestic world fully. She, she showed the possibilities of romantic love for a man and a woman. I mean, every one of her novels is about a, an adult love. And I mean that, underline that, adult love. It's the struggles that a man and woman have to come to before they get married. Every novel is like that. There's such a maturity to her understanding of the masculine-feminine relationship. Them. But you can't find God anywhere in her novels. It just isn't there. She gets close to it in Mansfield Park when, when one of the characters in there looks back to a time when people used to pray. You know, but that's gone in English, in English culture. So if you, look at the, if you look at the novels of the 19th century, you get a sense of just how far we've moved away from Christian beginnings, you know, from the Renaissance forward. And I, I wanted to do that by way of, of emphasizing the contrast between that fact and what Melville and Hawthorne were doing in America. Because in, in Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick, we are dealing explicitly with religious themes. So what we see is there's something deeply religious about the American character. That's number one. But the other thing, if you look at the romantic poets in the 19th century, you see the same thing. Um, Keats, Byron, Wordsworth, Shelley, the great romantic poets, are all responding not to a loss of religion. They look back to the Middle Ages sort of with a curiosity for these antique things. They're all responding to the advent of the sciences, that the science, sciences have taken over the intellect and reason, and they turn to the imagination for an answer, but they don't go to religion. So you won't find religion in the Romantic Poets, except Blake. 
and he's at the beginning of that romantic tradition. <coughs> um, so this is an anomaly. Um, I, I don't know whether Melville read Blake. It's hard to believe he wouldn't have. Um, but so William Blake is the first romantic. Uh, he lines up with the French Revolution and goes forward. But he's the only one who really deals explicitly with religious themes. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll, we'll be reading some of his poems just because he's roughly a contemporary with Melville, even though um, he's English. I'll read the first two poems. Notice in the first poem, it's, it's the introduction from Songs of Innocence. Blake read, wrote a great deal of poetry, and the most popular are the, this collection of poems from Songs from Innocence and Songs from Experience. The songs from Innocence are just that. They're lyrics dealing with various states of innocence. He saw this inherent goodness in man, and he writes to that goodness in those poems. Um, set off against those are these songs from experience, which answer every one of the ones from Innocence, but in a dark way. So we get a very, very dark view. It's like a dialogue um, going on. But this poem stands at the beginning of that collection, introduction, and it's a poem about his call as a prophet, fittingly, fittingly. Now you won't hear, I mean, you, if you look at this poem, you wouldn't think that. I mean, I remember the first time I read it, I didn't see it, and then the more I read it, the more I realized, and I was shocked. But notice what happens here. He presents himself as answering this child. It's an angel, he calls it a child. And this child comes to him and says, um, um, pipe this song. So he's using an instrument. And then the child says, put the instrument away, sing your songs. And then he comes back again and says, put your um, singing away, write. Now think, just for a second, think about that. If, if, you're, if you're calling, if you answer your calling by means of an instrument, you're limiting yourself to those people who are within hearing range. Yeah? If you sing it, you're still limiting your call to people who are within hearing range. If you write it, suddenly that, that call can be dispersed everywhere. So you watch Blake, if this is a poem about his calling, his sense of being called to do this, going through these stages as an artist, starting with an instrument, singing, and then ending up writing. Okay. And then the, the second one is the lamb, called the lamb. Um, it speaks for itself, so I'll just let it go. But, okay, William Blake. <coughs> Introduction from Songs of Innocence. Piping down the va valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Notice it's about a lamb. And the figure, I mean, how important that is. Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed. 
And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs every child may joy to hear. There is no poet who writes a simply split. I mean, I read this poem and think a sixth grader could have written it. There's nothing in the language that's beyond the language of a sixth grader, and yet how powerful it is. Just powerful. And notice, it's almost as if, this is a, it's just a touching poem, it's almost as if the angel learns. Because when he hears him play the pipe, he weeps. And it's as if he gets a feeling of what power this man has. So he says, drop it, sing. And, and notice the response again. He weeps again. And seeing the power in this man, he says, put the songs away, write. It's as if he's learning that this man can do more than he thought, and he's calling him out very gradually. Beautiful poem, very simple, but um, it's, so it's, at the out, it's, it's the first poem, the lead-in poem to this collection, and you can see that in one sense he's announcing his prophetic call. So people who come into that poetry will read it that way. The Lamb. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly, bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name, little lamb. God bless thee. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, they're so simple and so powerful. It just, it, 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 it's just a good reminder for any, anybody. In the evening class, and I, um, I don't want to go into what you said the other day because I don't know how much I can say, but um, Bob and Marcy in the evening class, when Marcy got so inspired by the lyric poetry, I don't know if you know, some of you have been in the evening class, she got so inspired that she started writing poetry. She's read some of it. I, we can't go into it because it's, but she got inspired. And I know that there are people in these classes that get inspired by this literature. All I can say to you, all of you, is if, you, if there's the slightest touch of an inspiration, if you have a, the barest glimpse you should be sitting down and doing something with it. And I'm saying that with Blake in mind because if you watch Blake, it isn't as if you have to have this great learning or this great sophistication, yes? Yeah. Something, this is as simple as a child and it's extraordinarily powerful. So it's not like we have to have this great breadth of learning to answer something creative in us. We just have to, we have to learn to find the humility to do it, or the boldness, with simple things. Okay, so, um, I would love to hear some of you saying, you know, in a month or two, start a writing, or painting, or, or painting more. Um, okay. I remember. Here's what I was going to say that I forgot. Um, if you all, be, if you all are, if you're going to take the study guides, if you could please pay three, four dollars for each of them. There's two here this morning for the first group of chapters and the second group. I think they'll be really helpful. 
but um, pay, pay Suzanne. I want to ask everybody to be on your honor. This is me asking you to be on your honor to read this book and not let the study guides replace it. I have to shame all of you to do this. <laughs> You, you, I, I did this a long time ago when we started together. Remember I said how important it is. I don't want to go back there, but it, it's worth repeating. Um, when we started together as a group, I knew that it would be difficult for everybody to read. And I didn't want not reading to keep you from coming, because I know people get busy. So I said, if you have trouble reading, don't let that keep you. Come anyway. But I wanted to underscore how important reading is. And I remember relating it to the Eucharist how important participating. Um, think about the difference between knowing of thinking of the Eucharist as commemorative, we're just commemorating it, and actually entering into it, taking the Eucharist in faith that we enter into the sacrificial love of Christ. It's a very different thing. And you know from our reading together how important participating is. We enter into the experiences of these people. They're not ideas. We're not, we're not in an abstract world. We actually enter in concretely. And I've talked to that. It, it helps to open our hearts. It helps us to understand more clearly human beings, our relationships with them. Um, but we can't do that if we don't enter into it. So it's important to read. I don't want to hit you more than that over the head, but. But I, I want to encourage you all with, with, to not let the study guide get in the way of reading. It's a help. Read it and then go on to read the book because it will help you. But don't let this thing get in the way. Okay? I just wanted to confess to you all that I even fell asleep on the movie. So <laughs> Gregory Peck didn't even hold my attention. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don said that too. Remember I told you that movies can't, there's a whole narrative element. It's like Jane Austen, if you read Jane Austen novels, you, you get a sense of this extraordinary intelligence in her that comes through with the writing. And when you see the story, none of that's there because there's no narrative presentation, it's visual. Same thing with Moby Dick, you will, you will not get close to Ishmael and yet there's no story without him. Everything comes through him, his mind, what he's looking at, how he looks at it, the spirit he brings to it. All of that's lost, so. Okay, let's start. Moby Dick. Um, just a quick review. Um, quick review. Um, I want to get on to the, the, um, the, the group of chapters we're working with this morning, but just quickly to look back. We talked about how important Melville's um, opening chapters are because they are a severe, severe critique of um, a, f a failed Christianity. And for a couple of weeks I tried to lay out the difference between the Protestant um, worldview and the Catholic. And I did that because I, I wanted to suggest that there are things about the New England culture that are not Catholic. And I wanted everybody to be aware of the differences, so I tried to go into fundamental differences between a Catholic way of looking at the world and a Protestant. But I also wanted to be very clear, I didn't want that to keep us from being indicted, being convicted in this presentation. I didn't want us exempted. If we don't find ourselves under, in that critique, I think we're failing. Because I think that 
critique is general. Um, and we looked at all, all the characters. There's not a character that he presents that isn't implicated in a failure right from the beginning. Ishmael is almost suicidal. He, I mean, that's a little bit heavy, but he's certainly, I, I don't know what the word, depressed. Um, he's carrying a heavy burden. He's bringing up funeral lines. He's, he's ready to carry a pistol in him. And he uses that image of the sword like an ancient Roman. You know, he, he's clearly got death on his mind, even if he's not dealing with it openly. When he comes to New Bedford, remember, he's missed the boat. And I, I think we talked about that, didn't we? He's got all these choices to make, all these choices to make, and yet it's clear that something's happening outside of him that he's not aware of. Um, if he if he'd not missed the boat, the likelihood is he, he would not have missed he would have not met Quico, and he would have not have sailed off with Ahab. So right from the beginning, in this very innocent way, veiled, hidden way, we have a sense that there's something providential at work, even if Ishmael's not aware. Okay. He comes to is that clear? That all these things happen and they're strange and and things emerge from this, this friendship with um, Queequeg and the fact that they go on together and he ends up sailing under Ahab. If he had not missed that boat, none of that would have happened. So, so he doesn't lose his free will. He still has free will, but something else is happening. When he comes to um, New Bedford, he encounters this black church which he likens to Gomorrah. So there's this dark aspect to this religious um, group here in New England. When he comes to Peter Coffin's Inn, he sees this Lazarus figure outside the door. Peter Coffin's the owner of this establishment. He's got money. He's inside comfortable. The, La the Lazarus figure's outside like the Lazarus figure from the Bible. If you all remember the parable, right? Divas is wealthy and he ignores this figure and then he goes to hell and he wants um, somebody to go back and tell his brothers and um, Christ, I think it's Christ says, it won't do any good, they didn't listen to him, you know. Um, so, right from the outset, we start getting these indications that something's wrong. Um, he meets Quiquig, a barbarian, a cannibal. All the, all the Presbyterian figures, and remember this is largely a Presbyterian world, they're Quakers, there, are, there may be high Anglicans here, we don't hear anything about them. For the most part, this is a Presbyterian, a, a, a broad Protestant culture. Um, all the Presbyterians view these two figures strangely, that Ahab, who is white, should be a friend, seeming to make a friend with this barbarian. Ishmael. Ishmael. Sorry, what? You said Ahab. Ahab, sorry, God. God, it's getting worse. Um, is a shameful thing. Somebody in the evening class asked why, and I hope it's, it, I'm assuming that that's sort of self-evident, but if it's not, remember, for the early Christians, anybody who wasn't in the Christian community was, looked, was thought of as being among the unregenerate. They were among the unsaved. So people outside of that were a scandal to people inside. So the Christian community looks at Ishmael and Queequeg walking together as a sort of scandal um, that he's making friends. And you know in the next day when, they're, when 
Ishmael watches Queequeg um, performing his ritual. He enters into it. I'll read that. And, and it seems to me, he, in, in one, for at least for a moment, he renounces his Presbyterian faith. Um, I'll, I'll read that because it's too important. Um, when we go into the chapel, we see people in the chapel who are isolated by their experiences of having lost loved ones. They're all focused on those marble tablets. And I, I, I think I, I recall to you the, the great theme of the Odyssey. Remember when we entered the Odyssey and we go to those families in Sparta and Pylos and even Ithaca? Everybody's trapped in the past. The great problem in the Odyssey is how do you get out of the, the, the wounds of the past? Remember, for those of you, all the marriages, all the marriages are trapped in the past. They can't let go, won't let go of those wounds. The whole action of the Odyssey is to come out of those wounds into the present. And we saw the cost of that, how difficult it was. That's what, that was the great contribution of the Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey. Here we get something like that. All the people in the chapel are isolated. They're sitting off by themselves. They're alone. It's one more indication of the isolation of these people. They're living lonely lives. Um, Father Mapple's sermon goes to the Jonah story. And um, I, nothing to call here except remember that um, Ishmael goes through exactly the same experiences, so we're meant to see the two line up with each other. At the end of that, um, at the end of that sermon that he makes, um, Um, he exhorts his congregation to take their faith more seriously. <coughs> it becomes pretty clear that Mapple himself is a Jonah figure, that he feels as intensely as he does because he learned, we're pres I'm presuming, that he underwent a similar Jonah experience, that he tried to hide from God, couldn't, and something happened to make him serious, so he's come back um, to, to call people back to God. And he does that very seriously in the sermon. On page 81, remember he keeps repeating this um, at the top of 81, woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor, woe to him who would not be true. That is, woe to him who, who, who wants to get along with the world and cares more for what people think about him than doing God's will. Towards the bottom of the page, Delight is to him whose strong arms yet support him when the ship of his base treacherous world has gone down beneath him. Delight is to him who gives no quarter in the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin, though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators. He's saying no man should make the world more important than his love of God. He has something to do. He's called to do it. Take it seriously. That's the whole force of his. Now, um, in some sense, it looks to me like um, Mapple stands outside this critique because he seems to be giving God's word. I would just add this because it seems to me everybody in this opening has got something wrong. Mapple's doing what he should. He's speaking the truth. The serious question is, does he do it in charity? Is there a spirit of mercy coming from him? There's a, it seems to me, as, at least as I read Mapple, that there's an Old Testament quality, that there's something almost vindictive. He knows the failure, he knows the wrongs, he's calling Christians back to themselves, 
but he does it in a spirit that's that's touched with something vindictive. It's a legalistic kill, burn, you know, root out. It's hard to detect a a quality of mercy combined with um, the truth. Remember when we came out of Dante, we saw that one of the one of the challenges for all of us as Christians is to bring law and love together, justice and mercy, both of them. Um, so. Matt was a questionable figure, but he, he, he's at the center of this critique, and, and he's the one person that, um, that Melville devotes more time to than any other. But During that time, I mean, my thought is a lot of preachers and pastors kind of had that. Helen Brimstone. Yeah. Yes. So that wouldn't have been unusual for him to have that. Mm -hmm. um, but he's right, demeanor. right. Although he's obviously exceptional here, he's different from everybody else in that regard. But um, and that's fading. You know, if you go back, if you read the histories and the works of those early Puritan ministers, the writers Winthrop and all those really great, you know, the early founders, there is that quality to, to them. But this is a time when it's clearly fading. It's it's not present. This Christian culture is moribund. It's dying, um, but it's it. You know, it. it um, it seems to me one of the things that Melville's doing is. I'm, I may be making a mistake here. I have to be really careful because I I want to I don't want to do something that's not true to this work. One of the things that I said last time when I made the distinction between a Catholic culture and a and a Protestant is the real presence. In a Catholic culture, there are sacraments. The, the, the miraculous, the, the, the reality of miracles that, that we identify with Christ is still present in a, in a Catholic community. People partake of those. Um, the Eucharist is the most important. I mean, we, anybody who believes that in faith believes that he's actually entering into the life of Christ and Christ action. Not in word, not in word. That's the whole thing. Protestants enter into Christ's life through words. I mean, they're reading scripture and interpreting. There is no real presence. They don't take the real presence. That's a commemorative act. That real presence is missing. And the, 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 it seems to me one of the problems is that focusing as much on the word, it tends to encourage a legalistic intellectual sp spirit. That real presence of keeping the sacrifice alive is missing. We don't find it in this culture, except in Queequeg, who does it with his idols. I mean, that's not the real presence, but he's actually, he's actively, physically engaging with something that's holy to him. Um, anyway, there, it, it just, let me, put that out as a question. It's important to take a look at Mapple and see where he fits in this critique. Pelagan Bildad, remember Bildad is reading from the Bible, he's reading that passage where Christ is saying, lay not up your treasures on earth. Peleg brings in um, Ishmael and they settle the accounts and uh, Bildad's first offer is to give him the 700th and 77th lay, which is nothing. So he's, he, he, like the captain in the Jonah story, he's cheating him. He knows he's running from something. So Peleg straightens it out, but, but Bildad, who's a Quaker, is cheating him. 
Um, if we go, when we go to Mrs. Hussey, we find a woman who's far more concerned about the cleanliness of her house and not losing money than she is about Ishmael. Ishmael is behind that door. Nobody knows what's happened. They think Queequeg's behind that door, and Ishmael has to finally break it open, and she's um, terribly upset because there's... And here, here again, another telltale sign. Somebody committed suicide there. Something's wrong in this culture. Somebody just committed suicide. She's afraid Queequeg has killed himself too. Ishmael has to break the door down. She's distraught. She's just been arguing with her ne Negro boy about something probably having to do with cleaning. And she's distraught because she has to buy a new door. She cares more about that than the life of the person inside. So all of it's presented comically. But if we look closely, we find everywhere something's in spirit, something's wrong in this whole culture. So, um, and remember, take a look at this. I want to, we didn't, uh, oh, oh yeah. Turn to page 142, 143. When, when the ship sets out of harbor, there's a small boat that accompanies it so that the captains can see it out of the harbor and then bid their farewell. So Bildad and Peleg are, are, are bidding farewell to the ship at the bottom of 142. Meantime, overseeing the other part of the ship, Peleg ripped and sworn astern in the most frightful manner. I almost thought he would sink the ship before anchor could get up. He's so full of antics, he can't control himself. Involuntarily, I paused on my handpike and told Queequeg to do the same, thinking of the perils we both ran in starting on the voyage with such a devil for a pilot. I was comforting myself, however, with the thought that in pious Bildad might be found some salvation, spite of his 777th lay. You can imagine he'd have a little sympathy with his captain who wanted to give him nothing. When I felt a sudden sharp poke in my rear and turning around was horrified at the apparition of Captain Pillig in the act of withdrawing his leg from my immediate vicinity. He just kicked him in the rear and said, get going. I mean, here he is. Here's the captain there going out and he's, you know, like a brutal man kicking him and saying, get yourself busy. You know, you're is that the way they heave in the merchant service? He roared, spring. Thou sheephead, spring and break thy backbone. Why don't you spring? I say, all of you, spring, quohog. He doesn't even have the name right. I mean, all of this is sort of, it's all comic, but if you look at it, it doesn't bear looking at. These people are objects to Peleg. He doesn't even know their names, quohog. And what a degrading mishap, I mean, the way, whatever you mispronounce something, quohog. Spring, thou chap with the red whiskers. Spring there, Scotch cap. Spring, thou green pants. People are known by their clothing or other things, but not as persons. It's a business. God, I mean, if this is, if this is an image of modern America business, this is what goes on around us with bosses all the time. They don't know human beings as people. They're things, and they're replaceable. I don't want to get started. I've already. <laughs> I need to stop. Remind you of anybody? Yeah. Yes. Um, here. 
But notice, notice what happens here. Spring, I say, he keeps saying, and so saying, he moved along with the windlass here and there, using his leg very freely, kicking everybody. While imperturbably Bildad kept leading off with his psalmody, thinks I, Captain Pillig must have been drinking some. So we've seen the bad side of Bildad before, and now we're seeing the bad side of, these are the two captains of industries. These are the CEOs of a business. They start singing this song, sweet fields beyond the swelling floods, stand dressed in living, how, 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 what, what, what are the words, ethereal. It's pastoral and ethereal and lovely. And look at Ishmael's response. Never did those sweet words sound more sweetly to me than then. They were full of hope and fruition. In spite of this frigid winter night in the boisterous Atlantic, in spite of my wet feet and wetter jacket, there was yet, it then seemed to me, many pleasant haven in store, many places and meads. What does it say about Ishmael? How innocent he is. It, it's like any of us, if we were to start a new job, we, we enter into this new job full of expectations and think how blessed it's going to be. And then three weeks later, regret, regret that we're there. Um, um, bottom 144. But at last he turned to his comrade with a final sort of look about him. Captain Bildad, come, old sheep, shipmate, we must go back the main yard there. So they've got to leave the ship and return to shore. Boat ahoy, stand to, come by, close alongside now. Careful, careful, come, build that. Boy, say you, last, God. I'm feeling sorry for the wife who lives with this man right now. Um, luck to you, Starbuck, luck to you all. Mr. Stubb, luck to you. Mr. Flask, goodbye and good luck to you all. And this day, three years, I'll have a hot supper smoking for you in old Nantucket. He was going to give Ishmael the 777th lay for three years of work um, with, without a scruple. Um, I'll have a hot supper, is it that's going to answer. Hurrah and away. God bless ye and have ye in his holy keeping, men, murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. I hope you have fine weather now so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among you. A pleasant sun is all he needs. Go down. Don't stave the boats needlessly, you harpooners. Good white cedar plank is raised full 3%. Here's Mrs. Husby. Be careful you don't do this because the cost of lumber is going to go up. Don't forget your prayers either, Mr. Starbuck. Mind that cooper. Don't waste the spare stays. Oh, the sail needles are in the green locker. Don't wail it too much a Lord's days, man. But don't miss a fair chance either. That's rejecting's heaven's good gifts. All of this is through the Bible. It's like he's filtering all of this through biblical terms. Have an eye to the molasses tears. Mr. Stubb, it was a little leaky, I thought. If you touch the islands, Mr. Flask, be aware of fornication. Goodbye, goodbye. Don't keep that cheese too long down in the hold, Mr. Starbuck. It'll spoil. Be careful with the butter. 20 cents, the pound it was. And mining, he goes on and on. Here we are again. I mean, what? And it's interesting. If we look at what's going on, remember, this is commercial America. This is a, when we did Dante, this is the commercial republic. What was the greatest sin in America, the two greatest sins to Dante? Greed. Pride and, and greed and envy. Because you, you don't want to not have what other, what other people have. And in your pride, you want to get above other people. And you're greedy. What's motivating, what's motivating these men? Um, cupidity. I mean, it, it, they're, they're greedy. They, they don't want to lose money. They want to make money. 
So this whole culture has given itself to wealth. Um, even though their terms are biblical, it's the biblical terms serve as a filter. What comes through is that they're more concerned not to lose money or to make money than they are to realize their Christian beliefs. So, so here we are here. This is this is our plot. Um, I don't, I'll come back to this in a minute. But here on the land, what he does is um, provide a, a context in which to view everything that's going to happen here. And what we see here on land is that there's something wrong with this Christian culture. It's failing. It, it's allowing other things to be more important than um, their faith. Um, Let me stop there because I want to come back to this plot in a second. We also um, talked about Ishmael as a reader because we talked to him importance about these two ways of reading, the scientific and the biblical coming together. That's the great conflict underlying the story. And I asked how good a reader um, Ishmael was, remember? Um, and he was missing signs everywhere, everywhere. There were signs of death, his own morbidity should have alerted him, but it's as if he's too caught up in his grief, his depression, whatever you want to call it, to really see what's going on. Peter Coffin, Gomorrah. Um, when he comes to the, um, to the uh, chapel, he sees all of the tablets with the writing on it. Um, um, when he goes to Mrs. Hussey's, he sees the sign with the two tripods that look like a gallows. Um, I'm missing something here, I can't remember. The prophet, I was going to go, yeah, the prophet, I can't, were there other signs? Um, I think those are the, in the landscape, the major one that, that um, he misses is the sign given to him by Elijah, remember that the morning when they're going aboard, the, twice he speaks to them, but in the second one, when they're actually going on board, it's early in the morning and it's foggy, and Ishmael catches a glimpse of these shadows. Yeah, and then what was that? Elijah, it's the, it's the five men that Ahab is secretly taking aboard. They're, they're all Eastern. And that's absolutely crucial because for Melville, as I think for anybody who's Christian, has got to take this seriously. The East represents a, a, a cauldron of, of heretical spiritual religions and um, cults and all sorts of idolatrous sorts of things that go on. Fadala is a, of that group, and he's Ahab's counselor. Um, there's a sinister evil quality to Fadala, that, so Ahab's looking to him. Anyway, Elijah comes to him and says, um, did you see them? Did you see them? See if you can find them. Remember those words, because I liken, I liken those words to the opening line of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Remember the opening line is, who's there? Who's there? And that's a, a, a haunting kind of question that hangs over the whole work. Elijah's question to Ishmael should hang over the whole work for us. See if you can find them. Let me put it differently. On this Christian culture that we've been looking at in the opening chapters, does anybody recognize spiritual evil? No. They don't. Because Christianity 
has disintegrated into a moral code. It's a social code. It's a moral code. The, 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 the sacramental, the holy, is gone. It's absent. It's missing. When that goes, how can man confront evil at all? With what does he confront it? I hope that's clear. If evil is a spiritual evil, if it's sinister and spiritual in character, how can man combat it without a spiritual good that's greater than it? The sacramental world is not present. So when Elijah says, see if you can find them, see if you can find them, we have to wonder, what are people not seeing about spiritual evil in the world? Look at Ishmael's innocence. He's just innocent in everything he does. One of the things he's, he's going to come back with after the ship crashes is a much more profound sense of the spiritual evil within man because watch what happens. The whole ship goes down. Everybody's destroyed. So there is in the American character this innocence in dealing with spiritual evil. Ishmael is going to come into maturity. He's going to look at spiritual evils. He will experience it firsthand. He's going to have to deal with it in himself. This, in that sense, this takes us right back to Dante, because remember, that's what Dante did. He couldn't begin to climb that mountain until he learned to see the real depths of sin, generally and in himself. That's why we began it. I remember saying to you, it's going to take some courage to do this, because we're going to have to look at all these, these horrible things that are inside of all of us. I think that's why Francis asked us to read the Divine Comedy you know, last year. It's a world in need of, of it, it won't be open to the spiritual graces offered us if we don't see the spiritual evils that need to be answered, if I can put it that way. Um, okay, last thing before we get to this week and then set out to see, because we're all going to see, um, page 136. Remember, um, when we began, I, su I suggested that we, it's really important to see Ishmael as a Jonah figure, and it's no accident that Mapple um, uses the Jonah text for his homily. Um, it's to set up the parallels, because you know that what happens to Jonah on that ship is exactly what happens to Ishmael. The captain cheats him, he's hiding. Um, one of the parishioners in the eating group questioned my um, saying that he was hiding from God because there's nothing explicit said about it in so many ways in the opening. It's not made clear, but but I want to I want to read a passage that, in a sense, does make it clear. Um, page um, one thirty six. This is a, the time when they're making preparations to board ship, and Ishmael says. To these questions they would answer that he was getting better and better, this is about Ahab, and he was expected aboard every day. Because he's, how, how could a man ship, ship out to sea and not even know the captain who's going to be the leader of that expedition? I mean, how, how prudent is that? You might be signing up with a nut, for all you know. We just did. <laughs> um, to these questions they would answer that he was getting better and better and I was expected aboard every day. Meantime, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, 
could attend to everything necessary to fit the vessel for the storage. Here's the line I want you to just remember. If I had been downright honest with myself, I would have seen very plainly in my heart that I did but half fancy being committed this way to so long a voyage without once laying my eyes on the man who was to be the absolute dictator of it, so soon as the ship sailed out upon the open sea. But when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he be already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his suspicions even from himself, and much this way it was with me. I said nothing and tried to think nothing. He's hiding. Um, there's something wrong and he can't admit it to himself. And I don't think he'll be able to see it all until it's all over. How many of us go through life aware of the way... I remember saying this. We had, we had, I'd read the passage from Maple's sermon. How many human beings make accommodations in the job they work um, because whether they know it or not, they're hiding from God? It's much easier to move into a world in which you can get caught up in that world than it is to deal with whatever it is God's asking of us. Wait, wait, how much, so, I mean, if, if Ishmael is a sort of universal everyman figure, how much does anyone, when they embark on an adventure, do it without really knowing the underlying motives, how much they're hiding from themselves? It's a, it's, a very, it's a very difficult thing, I think, and, and clearly the way he expresses it. Even though he's aware that in some way he's not dealing with things, he's not fully aware of it. It's just a... Well, you know, you, you, you talked about that in, in Winter's Tale. Why did every body adapt to the king? Yeah, 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 yeah. And we all get into that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's impossible not to have that happen because you, once you get induced into a system, it's almost like you go into a trance. In the cave. Or, or back to the cave. Yeah. And it's hard, really hard to wake up. For sure. And, and not only hard to wake up, but re remember in the... I mean, this, I'm so glad you just brought it up. Remember in the cave or in the Socratic dialogues, um, whenever anybody challenges you, if you're in the cave in that darkness, your first response is to defend it or, or argue or deny or turn around and point your finger at somebody else before you question yourself or begin to change, yeah, yeah. So do we always need a Socratic figure who's going to push somebody? See, I, I mean, if you're asking me personally, I mean, I, I just think, if you're asking me, my, and I want to try to stay with the literature, but it seems yeah. to me one of the values of the literature that we're reading is that it helps us to question these things and raise these questions for ourselves and look at ourselves. I mean, that's been my hope from the beginning, more seriously. Not, not to get overly dark, but to face the darkness knowing that there's always a greater light and be, and be glad for that, you know. That, so, to the degree that you don't look at the darkness, it seems to me you're undermining God. I mean, you just don't give him credit for how great a great, what, what Christ did in doing what he did, so. So I think one of the, I mean, one of the things that literature does is perform that Socratic exercise that it helps us to question and see things and look at them. And Don, you have. Maybe in corporate America today, you know, the isolation is even worse because when when they started telecommuting, that is, you could work at home with your computer, 
I was in a department where I didn't even know what some of the people looked yep. like because they yep. were in Atlanta or yep. Colorado or yep. Houston. Yep. My manager was in Houston. Yep. It was just a voice on a telephone yep. or an email yep. address. Yep. <laughs> yeah. This is body <laughs> It actually. And you could hide easier that yes. way. Yes. My yes. manager would never answer his phone. Yes. Always yes. Filter it. You want to hear yes. what you had to say before he would yeah. call you back. Yeah. It actually shakes me. I'm not, I mean, just hearing you, it, it shakes, honestly, I'm not, I'm not exactly, it shakes me. What you're describing is what I've always felt, and I've said, I've used this term, I don't know that it, it I fully conveyed what I meant by it, but I really believe that it's a, that we live in a Gnostic world, and that's frightening to me. And by Gnostic, I mean, we live in our heads outside of our bodies. We don't stay... If you're in a community, neighborhoods are gone. People are not home anymore. It worked. I mean, what you described is so telling. We're not connected in our bodies. We live in our heads relating to a cyberspace world. But not, and it, can there be anything more contrary to our faith? Because we are an incarnational people. Christ took on a body. The most, the, right from the beginning, one of the central truths of the Iliad was um, you can't ignore your body when Hector wanted to be a god. You know, um, we've seen over and over and over again when people don't pay attention to the limits that our body imposes on us, we get in a world in our heads. Our body sets limits. It, it brings us into contact with each other. We're supposed to be incarnational. We live in a culture that's Gnostic. Get on the phone, you hear a voice. Look on the tube, on the computer, at work, you're looking at a bodiless image. Nothing has a body. We live in a virtual reality. It, it, everything in the world is threatening our body indirectly, or, or our incarnational belief in the body. How important it is for us to—we're not angels. Your we're supposed to. Replaced by a robot. <laughs> that's right. God. God. Oh God. Let's stop. Uh, it is kind of interesting how it kind of hasn't changed since when Melville wrote this, the isolation, and it's still. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. Yep. Where is that? Um, okay, let me let me get forward quick because I'm all, I've taken more time here than I wanted. Let's. Um, it's important for us to see Ahab and Kush, um, Ahab and um, and Ishmael <laughs> as questers. Both of them are on a quest. But remember the difference between them. Ahab, and this, I'm gonna, this is to me, I'll get to it in a second, I don't want to wait. It's going to lead to, to what for me is one of the most troubling questions that this whole work will pose. I'm going to get to it in a minute, because it, um, it, 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 it's something that I think has got to trouble all of us. Ahab and Ishmael are both questers, right? They're both on a quest. Ishmael doesn't know it at the beginning. But we're going to see that the, the Ishmael that survives understands that there is something he's got to take back. So in a sense, his quest will become clear after the survival of the wreck. But two of them have two very radically different ways of viewing the world. Ahab wants to get back at the whale. Ishmael wants to understand the meaning of things. And in that sense, he's more like Socrates, and I'm going to say like Dante. 
Ishmael belongs to a Catholic world. To, Ish, to Ahab, the world has behind it something inherently evil. That's a notion that enters the West through the Reformation, that, that nature is depraved. That's a Protestant notion. I've said this more times maybe than I should have. To the Catholic, that's not true. To the Catholic, the effects of the fall were a wound. We were wounded. Our essence remained good. God made us good. The goodness isn't great enough to get us to heaven, but that doesn't make it inherently evil. To the Protestant, it is. To the Protestant, the effects of the fall were complete. Man's in a state of depravity. He can't come out of it without God, without Christ. To Ishmael, the world is good. He finds meaning, beauty, order, purpose everywhere. That's why I've said before, I think Ishmael is, as a figure, is really taking us back to where Dante left off in the Commedia, where the Catholic world, in terms of reading, stopped. He's, 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 one of the things that it seems to me Melville's doing is he's helping us to recover a sense of the beauty and worth in nature. At the center of Ahab's quest is this wanting to kill. Hmm? Ahab dies, Ishmael survives. There's some goodness that has to be made real to Nineveh, to America. Ishmael is bringing us back to see that. It seems to me that's the whole purpose of his narrative. Okay. Um, okay. I gave you, I, um, I, I, I took the, I've got a couple of pages of notes. I took the first page because I didn't want to, I didn't want to redo it. You have, I think you have the first page with these two little um, lines of the, of the plot, right? Can I point out one thing? Yeah. You've got a typo here instead of a misspeak. Where? It says that Ahab and Pequay. I know, Suzanne. I'm only pointing that out because it may be confusing. Yeah, thanks. She just circled it. I didn't even, does everybody have on this sheet? Mm -hmm. Under four it says Ahab and Queequeg. God, it's even in my writing now. Oh. Somebody help. Somebody help. My fourth class, this page. Number four, it says Ahab, Queequeg as questers. It should be Ahab and Ishmael. But I want you to get the sheet because I wanted you to look at the schemes down below. Remember, remember the all that we said about the plot of a work, how important it is. We can't understand a work without knowing its plot at all. Um, and remember that, this is Aristotle's, remember, a plot is an imitation of an action. The plot is an imitation of an action. This happens, this happens, this happens. These are the events that make up the plot, right? Ishmael goes to New Bedford, he signs onto the ship, he and Quiquig meet, they're friends, they go out. That's the plot. This happens, this happens, this happens. According to Aristotle, the plot is an imitation of an action, of a movement of spirit. So it's happening, what's happening on the literal level, what's visible to our senses is an imitation of something invisible. We can't see it. 
this movement of spirit. So just to go back, if we took the Iliad, for example, if this is the plot of the Iliad, remember it began with a ransom. It was refused, there was a conflict, there was a crisis. Achilles comes to that point where he sees that he was wrong, he re-enters the war, and that everything that happens in the beginning gets reversed. It's answered. There's a, another conflict in the chariot, in the funeral games. They're answered, they're resolved. There's a ransom at the end. Priam comes bringing money for his son Hector. It's accepted. The ransom here was refused. So everything that set the motion, the plot in motion, is resolved. Every Jane Austen novel, the plot, it's, it's the action of the peripatia, the turn. Every Jane Austen novel, every heroine comes to a moment where she sees something's wrong with herself. Too much pride, usually it's something else. Every Jane Austen novel. The, the, the reason this is important and the peripatia is so important, the peripatia, the turn, the, 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 the scene, remember the moment of recognition when you turn, you see something, the conversion moment, is that it, it always reaffirms the central role of reason in our life. Not faith, reason. It may involve faith, but on the surface it's reason. That our powers of reason help us to see something about ourselves that help us to change. We see, I shouldn't have done that, that was bad. I have to change. So every plot, every, every great plot, according to Aristotle, is a reassertion of the powers of reason. It, it, it brings us to a renewal. Every Shakespearean tragedy functions in the same way. Every tragic hero has a moment of recognition. Othello, Hamlet, Leontes. And they turn. And when that turn occurs, all the problems are answered. There's a resolution. We're at peace at the end. However much we were disturbed at the beginning of the story because there were so many injustices, we're brought to rest. There's a goodness in things. We can rest in them. So every, every play answers a problem. Every novel, good novel. That's why when we finish a good novel, we generally feel satisfied. I mean, we, we're, we're glad to have read it. It's like we achieve a rest. So, so, so to here. Um, and I, I, I showed you that the stages are set in a drama. We did this when we did Shakespeare. That every, every plot, every good plot, has an opening problem. You've got it on that sheet if you look at it. An opening conflict. If you look at the, you all have it? Opening conflict. There's a complication, a crisis, a denouement, and a resolution. Now let's just quickly go through this for a second. What's the opening conflict of, of um, Louis Dick? What's the opening conflict? Right there. Oh, I didn't even see. Oh, by the way, remember how every epic opened? In medius race, in the midst of things. Dante, in the middle of my life, right? Every epic begins in the midst of things. And it doesn't mean arithmetic middle. It means in the middle of a problem. It's like all of us in our families. Something will happen at some point in our family 
and it will catch us by surprise. We weren't prepared for it. Suddenly we get the news that our son is doing drugs or our brother ran off with a, left his wife or whatever it will be. Something shatters our world for a moment and we're in the midst of things. It's like therapy. You go into therapy and you, I mean, if you, if you think about therapy at all, at least as I understand it, whenever you enter into therapy, you've always got to come to terms with a problem and then try to find its roots. What brought it on? But we're always in the midst of things. So what's the opening conflict here? I would nobody. It says, it says right there. I'd say, did I put that down? Yes, you did. <laughs> I should not have given you guys the answers. Oh, okay. I'd say it's Ishmael's hiding and he doesn't know it. I mean, he's overcome with despair. Something's troubling. Does he see it? No. Does he want to deal with it? No. He wants to go to sea. Um, the complication is once he goes on board, he discovers the captain he signed up under is going to take everybody on this quest. We know in the quarter deck chapter that he, remember, he gathers everybody together and he gets everybody committed. He puts up that doubloon. So suddenly there's a twist. They're not going to hunt whales. They're going to join Ahab in his quest for vengeance. So now things get very complicated. The crisis is that, that moment when the disorders that are introduced in the beginning reach a pitch. And they'll reach a pitch later when they begin to cite Moby Dick and the denouement, always in a work, is the, the word is a French word, I think it means unraveling. It's when all the knot, the, the problems that started the book, all come clear. It's like a knot, all of its strands get clear and you understand all the things that were at issue. It all becomes unraveled. That's essential before the resolution can take place because no resolution can take place unless all those things are answered. Now, is that any different from any purposeful life any of us live every day? When we're in the middle of a problem, sometimes we can't see through it. We won't see through it until we see all of its strands and then deal with them in some way and try to bring them to a resolution. What we've seen in every great work we've seen so far is that that resolution can never happen without the help of the gods that by himself man is incapable. The man who thinks that he can deal with himself, Oedipus Rex. You'll see he can't. That's the proud man, the proud man who doesn't want a Ish or Achilles. If you go back to the Iliad, he comes to that point where he said, I let everybody down. I let everybody down. The man who thinks he can handle these things by himself, is a man who thinks he doesn't need God. And part of the problems is men begin to act thinking they can do without God and they create all these problems. The opening conflict, what's Ishmael running from? God. God's obviously got a purpose for him. But so there's that melancholy that he has. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more than melancholy, Tom. There's, a, there's an aspect of melancholy to him but it's, there's a darker, you know, when you're bringing up funeral lines and what, how does he, that image of the gun ready, to, you know, and the falling on the sword and it's all comic, but it's, there's something dark that he's only partly aware of. He doesn't know. He's too young and innocent. But 
But those gestures mean like he could unconsciously sacrifice his life for something he doesn't know about. Yeah. Holding on the sword. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, yes. <clears throat> okay. So, and remember when we did Shakespeare, remember we saw that, that according to the pagan idea of a plot, tragedy always ended in death. Dante radically changes that. He calls the work the Divine Comedy. For Dante, there can be no tragedy because there's a God greater than any bad we can do. For Shakespeare and Winter's Tale, the tragic action is concluded in romance. It ends with the winter, with Leontes and Hermione being reconciled. So what we see in ancient tragedy, the, the tragedy always ended with death, but the wrongs were answered. So when the deaths occur, a condition is created for a renewal. All the problems that answer now, a new condition can come, a refounding, a, a refounding can take place. Is that clear? A death, a death answers all the disorders, and it creates a condition for a new regime to begin, a new community. We never see it because it ends with death. Shakespeare's Winter's Tale is the first play that goes through the tragic pattern and works it out because we see an a, a renewal, a whole new regime come into being. The people gathered around forgiveness, love, the reunion of Hermione and Leontes, the recovery of Perdita, you know, a whole new community is brought into being. So what Shakespeare does is show that behind every death there is um, the possibility of renewing. That's a, that's a Christian belief. That, that we should not be sad about dying that we, because we believe in a resurrection, that something will come out of death. That's why we should not be frightened of death. The great poets have been teaching us that from the beginning, even, even Homer. So to here, so even though there's a conflict and, and Ahab is a tragic figure and it's going to end in the destruction of the ship, I believe that in this book, um, We've got a comedy. This is, I would call this, following Louise Cowan, um, my dissertation director, this is what we'd call purgatorial comedy. It's like Winter's Tale. There will be a great deal of suffering, but it will, it will lead to this great good, this greater good. Ishmael's survival and the writing of this book, this great thing that he did, called this purgatorial comedy. It, it will involve a lot of suffering, but a transformation of a character. That's our, that's our understanding of uh, conversion. Okay, um, here, I'm going to read, because I've, I've spent too much time, like always. Um, um, I'm going to just read a couple of things to, to get us forward to some of these major questions. But here's the question that I want to ask. To me, it, it's the most, right now, it's one of the most important questions I think we can ask um, about this book. Remember, if we go back to all the ancient, or even Christian, um, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, if we look at the whole epic tradition, um, the, the, the one theme that the epic, all epics have in common is the theme of a founding. This great epic battle take place, a certain person, whoever it is, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante himself. It's called out. He's given a divinely 
appointed task. He's, he's called out to do something other people don't do. So he's going to carry a burden other people don't carry. But it's by means of his struggles that, that he's able to bring into the world something that the world lacked to answer the disorders of this people. The, the flawed sense of honor, remember, the flawed sense of marriage in the Odyssey, the flawed sense of cities in the, um, in the Aeneid, a flawed sense of our own nature and the importance of education in the Commedia. Every epic shows us a people struggling with some disorder that it doesn't understand, it doesn't see, it's blind, people is blind. The hero is given this burden to bring something into it. And if you think about this, you can see they're all pointing to Christ. Even in the, in the ancient pagan world, there's some way in which they're anticipating Christ. Some heroes called out to bear a problem to answer these disorders. He will be the means of bringing something into this world that this world needs to answer them. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, who's prophetic, and here in Moby Dick, Ishmael. Okay? Now here's my... So, if every epic's been about a founding, um, what's the disorder here that Melville's dealing with? I mean, part of what we've seen is this critique, but it seems to me it, it gets a lot deeper. Um, if Ahab is an image of something deeply American, and all the sailors identify themselves with his question, um, what, is, what is it that Ahab is showing us about ourselves? You know that I've been saying this with every epic, that if we don't learn to identify with all the characters, even the bad ones that we're not reading very well, if Ahab is an image of something fundamentally American, it's in all of us. What is it? Ahab, Ahab, the whole instinct of his life is to get back at this thing, to blame it, to find fault with it, to wreak havoc on it. I'm going to say that that's in every one of us as Americans. Is it revenge? Yeah, but, but I, I, want, I want to, it is a revenge. You're right on, Tom, but what I'm trying to go to something more fundamental. I don't want to answer it right now. What I want to do is, is put this out for everybody to think about. What, what is it about, it's, it's true everywhere in the world, so it, I, I'm not questioning that it's universal, but there seems to be something in the American character constituted as a people. Remember, we broke off from England because it wronged us. The Protestant Reformation came into existence by pointing out faults, and it broke from the church. It wasn't, I mean, it was schismatic. It wasn't a renewal. I mean, if you look at the renewals in the church, Benedictine, Franciscan, Dominican, they're all within the church. This was schismatic, it broke off. There is something in the American character that, that at, it, at its heart goes through the world blaming pointing a finger, wanting justice to get back at somebody. So I don't want to answer it. I just, I want to put that question out because it seems to me if we take this stuff seriously, we, and this is American, as I suggested Dante's Divine Comedy was, mm -hmm. this is more modern. What is it that Melville's having us to see? What is this thing in our character? That's, because th there's this great call that we have, a city on a hill. 
it, it's a religious founding. That's why, that's why two weeks ago I said, America is different from Europe because its founding is explicitly religious. That means we're far more given to violence than every country in the world. I mean, except the savage countries, but our, the violence in our country is out of hand. Always has been. What is it about our characters, our personal self-identity? Um, now remember here, because this is where we're going to see Melville's um, set out this context um, in which to, this critique takes place, and it, it helps give us some sense of bearings of what we're dealing with. But what we're going to see is that lots of people don't deal with things in this Christian culture. That's part of the problem. Now we're going to go to C, and here we're going to look at the metaphysical underpinnings of this world. We're going to be dealing explicitly with all those things underneath that nobody in the culture deals with. So what are we going to learn? I don't want to answer it. I don't, I'm just setting wait done. Uh, I don't want to answer the question. What I want to do is, is try to... I'm not trying to be deliberately provocative. I'm trying to set out what I think is the fundamental issue. If you look at the plot, it's really clear what he's doing. We've seen this Christian culture. Now we're going to go to sea. Remember, in all the literature that we've been dealing with, the sea is an image of dangers. It's not man's home. It's what can't be controlled. Here, Peleg and Bildad want to do everything they can to control it, the descriptions of it. Remember, they want to go conquer the sea, to master it, to get out of it. They're going to sea to conquer it, to, to provide them with a living. So they do violence to it everywhere. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the, the sea was an image of grace. It's a place of danger. Man does not have control over that. He's got to learn to work with it. So all that happens here at sea is going to open up this, this whole natural world um, and deal with all the problems that have been opened up here. So um, we have to take things like the Cytology chapter Seriously, um, even though it's hard to read, but anyway, I think that's what we're doing. I want to I want to look at some readings just very quickly before we leave. But Don, did you have a question? I just got to say, you were talking about what's the American perspective on this. I think they want to dominate, dominate the land, dominate nature. You know, drill, drill, baby, drill. <laughs> wait on that. Wait on. Wait on an answer. Just keep the question in mind when we read, because I want. If this is an epic and and Ishmael has come back to teach us then, and, and we're leaving land with all these problems, we're going to begin to explore this world. So it's my way of just asking to stay open to this world to see what Ishmael has to teach us. What are we going to learn from this voyage? What, what is Ishmael going to learn? What is, what is Ahab going to learn? Is he going to learn anything as a tragic hero? Um, let's look at some readings quickly because I've got to leave you with a couple of things. Um, page 1689. What page? 169? 168 169. They have left sea, remember, I mean left port, remember they leave on Christmas Day. Um, it's middle of winter. Now stop and think about this. They're setting out to sea on Christmas Day. A, Ishmael is full of hope. Remember after he hears that song, he says, we're going to go to all these places of beatitude and joy and 
actually he's entered into the, the, the mouth of a whale and he doesn't know it. But it's Christmas Day. It's the, Christ, it's the day Christ was born and brought hope into the world. Is Melville v being ironic? Because some critics think he is. Some people think Moby Dick is, is an expression of Melville's quarrel with God. Is this irony that we're leaving in Christmas Day because everything that's going to happen is going to um, undermine that belief, the Christian belief in hope? Or are we entering the world as Christ showed it to us? Christ entered this world to deal with evil, to resolve it. So what's going to come out of this Christmas, if we look at this as a portal, this is the opening to this voyage. How are we going to look at the fact that it begins on Christmas Day? Um, ironic or fitting? Um, the first, early on the voyage, Ahab comes on deck um, because he doesn't sleep very well. He's tormented by these dreams. And one night, he appears on deck, and because he's got this stump leg, it knocks on the wood, and it, it keeps Stubb from going to sleep. He comes, on page 168, he comes on board, or uh, above board, and makes a comment to um, Ahab, middle of 168, hinted that if Captain Ahab was pleased to walk the planks, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise. How tactful is that to say to a man who's got a stump leg? <laughs> whose whole sense of injury is focused in that stump. Um, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise, hinting something indistinctly and hesitatingly about the globe of, about a globe of took. Put some gum underneath it and quiet. Can you imagine this? Um, and the insertion into it of the ivory heel, ah, stub, that didst not know I have then, Am I a cannonball, Stubb said it. Ahab gets furious and he says, down dog kennel. Stubb gets indignant because he doesn't like being talked that way. He has no sense of what he's just said to Ahab, but he doesn't like being talked to that way. He starts to come towards him and Ahab starts to approach him and he backs off. Um, Stubb says he's not going to be called those names and then Ahab says, then be called ten times a donkey and a mule and an ass and begone or clear the world of thee. It's really interesting. I went online to look at what some of the, the uh, um, study guides have shown on this stuff. Somebody describes this scene as unfolding with Stubb getting kicked. Ahab doesn't kick him here. The, as I remember, he doesn't kick him. He, he approaches him, and Stubb gets so nervous that he flees. I mean, he, he goes away. But in the next chapter, when he has the dream, he dreams that Ahab kicks him, and he kicks him back. And when he does, he almost shakes his leg off because it's like kicking a pyramid. In um, chapter 31, Queen Mab, this old Manx man comes to Stubb and tells him not to kick that pyramid. It, it's as if it's an ancient wisdom coming to say, um, don't take on Ahab directly. Um, it's a curious dream. It, it, it reminds me of the ancient Christians who used to say, obey the laws even when you're dealing with bad, bad rulers. That is, what is the job of a Christian in a world where some injustice is being done? Should he be taking on Ahab? I mean, this is a serious question. And Queen Mab is the, is the literary figure of a fairy who brings dreams to people. Um, 
On page 174, we get the cytology chapter. I don't want to read it, but I want to, um, I want to read the, the last lines. It's absolutely crucial, and I'd like you all to hear this and underline this. this is really important, because lots of people come across the cytology chapter and find it boring. They don't read it. You should read it. But it's absolutely crucial that you set this chapter against chapters a few chapters away called Moby Dick and the whiteness of the whale. Because in both of those chapters, we get all of these descriptions of Moby Dick as ubiquitous, semi-divine, an avatar, um, that, that you can't be reductive in the way that you treat him because there's something larger than life. And you've got all these lures at sea. He seemed to have been on one side of the world and the other side of the world exactly at the same instant. And there's um, stories of his actually um, destroying a ship or a, or a sperm whale, destroying a ship, just when the captain said, no whale will ever be able to destroy my ship. So there, there's the sense of the hubris of men and the extraordinary power of this whale. And then when you get to the whiteness of the whale, you get the same thing. He talks about the misty qualities of the whiteness. Now, here, it's really important to see this. The cytology chapter sets out whales according to scientific methods. You put a whale in a class and you identify its differentiate, those qualities that differentiate it from other things in that class, because that way you get to know it, okay? You set that scientific approach to knowing things against these others. And what you see is that in some sense they, they engage each other. The cytology chapter in one sense is a parody of the scientific method. That one of the inevitable results of science is reductionist. It will tend to reduce things to abstractions, to classes. So even if it's boring, you have to take this seriously because those two, those two sets, in some sense, define the, the conflict that I've been talking about in the 19th century. That this scientific way of reading the world comes into collision with this literary or biblical way of reading the world. They're two very different ways of approaching the world. Look at the way he answers, ends the cytology on 187. So he sets out these whales in all of these categories and then he says, um, you cannot but plainly see that I have kept my word, but I have now, but I now leave my cytology system, it's a system standing thus unfinished even as the great cathedral of Cologne was left with the crane still standing upon the top of the uncompleted tower. For small erections may be finished by their first architects, grand ones, true ones, ever leave the copstone to posterity. God keep me from ever completing anything. The whole book is but a draft, nay, but the draft of a draft, with time, strength, cash, and patience. He's just given a systematic treatment of whales. But he makes it clear that, that no systematic knowledge will ever be able to exhaust the knowledge of something. All scientists, I mean, really good scientists recognize this. Blake said it when he said something about there's an infinite world in a blade of grass. If you get into the subatomic world, once you enter that subatomic world, you're entering you, inward, you, the inward universes of being. So even though it's, it's, it's presented scientifically, he knows that no scientific knowledge can ever be complete. Once you enter the world of being, it's infinite, because being itself is. You enter a subatomic world of a blade of grass, you can never know it completely. 
there's always more to be known. Um, um, I don't want to pass over the knights and squires. I just want to mention this briefly. If you look at the the, the very first chapters dealing with um, the ship going out to sea are called knights and squires. And think about the parody on that. Knights and squires are medieval terms described in a medieval hierarchy. They're not modern at all because this is a modern commercial enterprise. It calls them knights and, knights and squires. It's important to see that by in what he's doing, he's giving us a hierarchy of, of an American industrial enterprise. Ahab has three mate, or yeah, um, Starbuck. Uh, and uh, Flans, right? And each one of these has his own harpooner. He has Queequeg, he has Tashtigo, and Dagu, right? It's interesting to see what he's doing because he makes it clear the three first, the three mates, the headmates, are all white. He calls them the brains of the enterprise. So under Ahab are these three mates. They are a product of a bourgeois civilization. They, we've seen now that they are men who in some ways have turned away from Christianity. Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask all have as harpooners noble savages. And they're from all over the world. The difference between these men and these is that these men are the product of a civilization. They're all conscious and reflective. They're educated. They're white. These are noble savages who have no education, if any. So everything they do is instinctive. That's why they're harpooners. But watch what happens when you think about it. Remember when Stubb insulted Ahab? And he went below deck. And he has that dream. He starts reflecting on it. Once he starts reflecting on it, he starts to trouble over it. And he says, I can't do that because um, think not is my 11th commandment. Do you remember that? Do I need to find that? Um, yeah, on page 169, when he starts thinking about it. Damn me, it's worth a fellow's while to be into the world, but if only, if only to fall right asleep. Stubbs way, this is really interesting, because what Melville's doing is parodying this American world. We're going to see in a minute, Ahab's going to, try to get everybody committed to his quest, Starbuck will try to resist him, only for a moment, and then he can't. Stubb, when he meets, confronts Ahab, backs down, and his response to everything is to sleep through it. He doesn't want to deal with problems. Damn you, it's worth a fellow's while to be born into the world, if only to fall right asleep. And now that I think of it, that's about the first thing babies do, and that's a sort of queer too, damn me. But all things are queer come to think of it. But that's against my principles. Think not is my 11th commandment. And sleep when you can. What's Stubbs way of dealing with problems? Go to sleep. Don't think. Now, now stop and think about this for a second. None of these men can deal with spiritual evil. None. When Starbuck comes up against him, he backs down. When Stubb comes up against him, his response is go to sleep. 
The way you get through problems is sleep through them. Eleventh commandment, not to think. Flask. Um, you know, they, they, they smoke a pipe or they do anything before they will confront spiritual evil. What are we going to confront on this voyage? Spiritual evils. The first mates are conscious. They're the brains. They, that is, the intellect by itself cannot deal with spiritual evil. We already learned that from Dante. What's the response of the savages? It's instinctive. They're unconscious. They don't consciously think about anything. They're athletic. They're bold, athletic, strong kinds of men. Um, so in those Knights and Squire chapters, Melville is setting out the hierarchy of the Pequod. It's showing us the nature of authority and what's at work, and secretly he's giving away what's at stake. That this is the way an American society um, exists, is structured, but nothing in it prepares man to deal with metaphysical problems, with spiritual evil that we're going to confront here. And I'll turn to that and we'll stop. Turn to page, um, turn to page 204. This is Ahab coming out. He puts up um, a gold doubloon on the masthead as a way of enticing the men into this quest. Yeah? It's your bonus plan. Huh? It's your bonus right, plan. Right, right. It's exactly right, Don. Exactly right. But you know, they don't really have a choice. They're at sea. Yeah. Where are they going to go? But they have yeah. Well, you, mutinies do occur. And all the, I mean, mutinies are not an uncommon thing at sea. Okay. I mean, it, I, I don't want to take. I think what you're saying is true. It, they're obviously in a difficult position. It goes back to what Tom was saying that once you're encultured to something, it's hard to break through. But mutinies were not uncommon. When captains really lost it, crews did revolt. And it seems to me we can say that this is what. Ahab is proposing is so radical, so outlandish, um, the, the men could revolt, but it seems to me one of the ways he gets past that is by putting out an incentive, a, a bonus, of money. Look at, look at um, on the bottom of 207, Ahab can see that Starbuck is not at ease with what he's been doing. He's been Ahab, this, this is so important, Ahab has just described what happened to him, that this whale took off his leg, it was not fair, everybody has suffered, he's asking the men to join in the quest with him. And, but he sees something reluctant in Starbuck in the bottom of 207. I am game for his crooked jaw and for the jaws of death too, he is willing to face death. Ahab, if it fairly comes in the way of the business follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest it, Captain Ahab? It will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket market. This throws me back to the Iliad. Remember that everybody in the Iliad was motivated by booty, by what they would get out of it. Um, there were deeper issues going on. How, how much booty can pay for a man's honor? That was the great problem that you, you can't put, remember, in the middle of the Iliad, book nine, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. If honor is intrinsic, 
and you're, how, how much money will pay for it? If you grow up in a society in which human value is equated in, in monetary terms, how do you ever get back to intrinsic worth of the soul? I don't know, was that clear? Remember, Achilles said, I think I'm honored in Zeus's ordinance after the, all the men in the embassy offered him tons of stuff. If you've been struck at dishonor, how much, how much will satisfy that? How much money? And if that's true, and part of what's going on spiritually within you is vengeance, how much money will take care of that? You know, I think about these people who take these law, these people to law when they want to sue for the death of somebody. How much money will bring back the life of a person? If you live in a society which, which equates value with money, everything can be bought off. There is no honor. Intrinsically, it begins to get lost. That was the fundamental problem at the heart of the Iliad. We're back in that kind of world right now. Ahab's trying to get everybody involved in a spiritual quest. They came for money. Starbucks resisting. But, but remember, he, he doesn't do anything. Um, one more. Page 38, Starbucks response that night. Remember that after the quarter deck, oh, by the way, before we leave the quarter deck, what Ahab, this is so amazing to me, what Ahab does to confirm their collective enterprise, he tells the harpooners to take the spearheads off their lances, to turn them upside down and turn them into um, goblets, chalices, puts wine in them, and has them drink. It's, an, it's, it's like a parody on the Catholic Mass. They are all committing to give up their lives, to risk their lives for the sake of vengeance. Now think about how much that's a parody of the Eucharist. Christ gave himself up freely. These men are committing their lives to something for vengeance, being bought off, but they're confirming themselves in this quest by drinking this wine from these deadly instruments that are turned into chalices. Um, it constantly leaves me wondering where a, or Melville was on the Catholic issue. Just because nobody in Protestant America thought well of Catholics. If you read the literature in 19th century, all the, all the novels on Catholic communities are these strange, sinister, sexual sorts of violent crimes that took place behind monastery walls and in convents where nuns were doing these sexual things with each other. I mean, this stuff was all over the place in 19th century, so the attitude towards Catholics was that Catholics were the Antichrist, that they're people doing these strange things. Here, it's just so hard to see what Melville is doing. It, he's not attacking Christ or Catholicism, clearly, but it, to me it's so amazing that what he's giving us is, is an inversion of the Mass in some ways. But In the monastery I was in Canada, there was a body under the altar, and when people came by to give a talk about, it was somebody who was murdered and placed under the altar. It was not a saint. It was, but so that, that, that still lingers. Oh, it still does, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah I know. <clears throat> um, quick, just to finish off here, page 214, chapter 38. Um, that night, after this ritual takes place, 
all of them in corrals, and a knife fight is going to break out between um, this Spanish sailor and Dagu, who's black, because this one man makes this allusion to the black sky, and um, Dagu gets sensitive to it, and he starts a fight, and the, and the Spaniard takes offense, and the two of them are going to—they're going to have a knife fight. One. In all likelihood, one is going to die. They're drinking, they're carousing. I think we're meant to see that what happened in the afternoon, that early morning when Ahab took everybody through this ritual, is that it left everybody with this nervous energy pent up, repressed, that they find themselves embarking on something they didn't know what to do. So like people tend to do when they drink, then that nervous energy gets pent up, but it has to come out. Here it's going to break out in a fight but it's stopped by the storm that comes up. But here on page 214, we get Starbuck's response to what happened. My soul is more than matched, she's overmanned, and by a madman, insufferable sting, that sanity should ground arms on such a field, but he drilled deep, deep down and blasted all my reason out of me. Reason is not sufficient to deal with the problem that Ahab's bringing to people. So Melville's showing us that, that men who pride themselves on their intellect, their competence. Remember, Starbuck's a model gentleman. He's, he's an image of the respectable man in this Protestant culture. He's in good standing. He's, got, he's strong morally. He's, he's not a man that's going to play loose with his life. He is full of integrity. And yet he cannot answer the spiritual evil. It's one of the things we're meant to see here. Um, the men start their fight and the, the, the uh, storm comes up to stop them. And then on chapter 41, page 226, this is Ishmael now reflecting back on the moment. I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs. It's like they'd been merged into an iron, forged together. They are united, one, behind this quest. My oath had been welded with theirs. The stronger I shouted and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. A wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears, I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. He's one, so the crew is united. Now, let me stop here, but I want to... Just take two minutes on a question, and then we'll leave. Stop for the day. Where does Ahab get his power over these men? His vengeance is that strong. Why would it be enough to He's unite obsessed. these men? Sorry. He's obsessed. I mean, why wouldn't it cause a mutiny? Why wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, what? I, the, listen, how does he? How did he get such control of these men? Because. Lots of men would have mutinied against the captain who did this. I guess they fear their captain. Or they're loyal to their captain, even when he's nuts. Mm. He's obsessed with vengeance. He is. Yet, well, we did. Yeah. Well, isn't that... Uh, it's like Say vengeance is an all. The potential for vengeance is an all. Say? <clears throat> the potential for vengeance is an all. So... It, 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 you know, it empowers people to have these, this kind of feeling. So if you feel helpless and somebody gives you something to mobilize yourself, to come over, you know, you, you, 
he's giving them access to something they don't want to see or deal with. And so he, he's able to bring that together. And so collectively, they, they're participating in this power drive of, of AI, you know, to people. Yeah. You began, Tom, by saying it, it's potentially in all of us. Why is it potentially in all of us? I think it's just human part of nature. human nature. Human nature follows something, and, and they don't have an alternative. And I think it's part of survival, fight, and the survival instinct in us that we must survive. So we don't put fancy words around it, but revenge is one way. You don't have to raise your hand. This kind of reminds me of the annual corporate kickoff meetings where <laughs> you have a theme for the year and you get all the troops together and you have a big show and rah, rah, rah. We're all, right. oh, yeah. all going to go out and, you know, do this. Kill the will. What was that page I just left everybody on? 226. 226. Could, could, could Ahab have gotten the power over these men I mean, you said, I don't know how you, it's potentially there in all of us, this quest or this wanting to get this vengeance, however you put it, but could, could he have gotten the, could he have exercised the power that he did over these men if they had not all shared in a sense of being wounded themselves? No, that, that's true. Isn't that it? I mean, the, yeah. and in that sense, because all of us grow up wounded, and any time somebody can rally behind it, answer it, to get back, then it's appealing to something, the sense of being helpless, of being able to answer these things that have wronged us. Now stop and go back to my question earlier. What is it, if Ahab is an image of something very American, and remember that in the American character there's this tendency to answer wrongs. Mm -hmm. Our very founding came into being by answering a wrong, going to war over it. The Protestant Reformation came into being by addressing wrongs, protesting. And in the opening chapter in Loomings, remember Ahab talked about that universal, or Ishmael talked about that universal thump. The thump goes around, everybody gets thumped. But he says, two shakes for all of us have. And he says, who ain't a slave? And he sort of mitigated it. He said, I can't remember how he did it, but that universal thump. It's as if he was trying to make a place for it that it's okay because all of us get thumped. In Ahab, it's not. So the, the, the question I want to ask is, could he, have got, could he have gained that kind of power if he wasn't appealing to some sense of being wounded so that those men identified with him and he gave them hope that it could be answered? Now, I want to go back to the other question. How much in the American character takes this form of pointing a finger, blaming, wanting to get back, that's stronger than any sense of good in the world. And let me just leave it. Just turn on TV. Let me leave it. <laughs> let me just leave it. Okay, that's because what he did in this ritual was gather the whole crew around his quest, united them. And the words of Ishmael, I was among them. I, my voice screamed as loud as any that it's so intense that he spoke to something all men identified with so strongly that at this point they're all committed with him. 
how much of this is at the heart of the American character, that this is partly what we're dealing with in this quest. And um, the interesting thing will be over the course of the next <coughs> 40 chapters or so, we're going to experience moments where Ishmael begins to disassociate himself from that quest. There will be moments when he pulls back. Something's happening. Something will happen to Ishmael. But at this point, the crew's united, even though they're nervous, so nervous, so anxious, that they're ready to kill each other in a fight. So this is where we are. We're at sea. We're about ready to explore the metaphysical underpinnings of this whole quest. It, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna deal with things that people on land, as we see, don't deal with. So that's where we're going. Be patient with your reading. Read. Read. Wow. <laughs> don't cut your wrists, right? <laughs> 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 That's right. That's good. Don't put it. That's right. 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 I think there, I think there's one where they actually does gather them or sing them, but I've got a line called Castle where he's describing all the metals, isolados, in a visual meeting, you can't do that. You've got to do a movie in an hour and a half. You know, Texas is going to take whatever it takes. Well, sometimes you follow the. I'm not good at it. So, you're enjoying the challenge? Most of the words. <laughs> it's got to be, I mean, you've got to, you've got to appreciate the book more, because you see the movie. You know what's going on, but you doesn't. So you're experiencing things in a more emphatic way. Yeah, I'm starting to say the same head. Same makeup as a head. Yeah, very, very disappointing in the movie.